welcome to the Seeds Church Podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe to us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and on our Apple and Spotify podcasts. We hope you enjoy this inspiring message from our Sunday service. There's a fundamental theological point I want to start with, which, which we all assume as Christians these days, and that is that we don't bring God to the community. Uh, God is there. And what we're doing is joining in with what God is already doing. So we need to have eyes to, to see and ears to hear so that we can join in uh, and partner with the Holy Spirit. So that made me start to think about, well, how do we then engage with the wider community? And this is very relevant for Crowder, but it's just as relevant for us here. And perhaps after today, we might change how we engage with the community that's round about this church. So my first question is, is how do we engage with the community? The, the wider community in, in an ongoing way. And this, this question made me think about a fairly well-known uh, passage in the Old Testament. And of course, it is, there's always a slight risk when you take things that are historical statements, you can, you can misinterpret what they mean. But I think this one has some clear guidance for us in terms of how we live now. And, and it's the book of Jeremiah in chapter 29, and we'll read it in a moment. But the background is that the prophet Jeremiah was in Jerusalem and he wrote a letter, the book, to those who were in exile in Babylon. Now, you know, Israel had been conquered, lots of people had been taken there and they were stuck there as exiles. Um, there were some false prophets who said, actually, Babylon's about to be conquered and as soon as Babylon's conquered, you're about to go home. And you can imagine the people were really uh, excited about that because one of the other things was that their understanding of God was quite different to now. One of the principles for them was that gods were located. So Yahweh, their God, was located in their homeland, but not in Babylon. There were other gods in Babylon. So to be taken from Israel to Babylon means you left God behind. And, and you can understand, you know, you who are committed people think, well, oh, that's a terrible place to be. So Jeremiah in writing has a different message to those false prophets. And the first part of it is probably not very good news. And that was that actually Babylon's not about to be conquered. And so that means if you're in exile, you, you're stuck there. You, you're going to be there for a long time. But then the second thing that Jeremiah said, which would have been greatly heartening to them, was that God was in Babylon too. God actually wasn't just stuck in Israel. God was everywhere and is with you as exiles in Babylon. So it's, it's, it's the same thing we believe today, isn't it? That God is everywhere. And we act on that, we live by that, and wherever we are, we know that God is there. And so Jeremiah writes these words, and I'm reading just a few verses from Jeremiah 29, if you want to look at it in your phones or Bibles, Jeremiah 29, 4-7. But it'll be on the screen as well. So this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jer Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. 
Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So Jeremiah's just saying, get on with living where you are. Stop camping, start investing in that local community, start living there rather than wanting to escape. This is where you are, this is where I want you to be. And this is very radical for the Israelites, because as you know, they're always a separated community. And I'm imagining there's still some separation here, yet there is this strong urge by God to be involved in that community and to pray for it. So they have to do three things, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, uh, you know, marry, sons and daughters marry, etc. Uh, so what it's saying is, these are all longer term things, it's worth you building a stone house. You know, don't just have a kind of a refugee shelter. Build a house that you can live in for many years. It's worth planting olives and vines that take years to produce fruit. Uh, and generations will be born there. Stop living as transients and start living as residents. And then comes this more specific guidance, work for the good of the city to which I've exiled you. Not just look after yourself, but change the nature of the city where you live, add to its quality of life. Now, some, some years ago when I was working in a kind of a wider mission area of the Uniting Church, I heard a story about a, a small country town in South Australia. I'm not going to tell you which one it is, because that's probably not going to be helpful. But the town council there was really concerned because the town was declining, as many are today. And they thought, what can we do to help even those who are passing through to stay longer? So they decided to change the main street of this town, you know, redecorate, have similar themes, um, improve the gardens, plant annual flowers, put in seats and shelters and barbecues, put in long parks for cars and, and uh, caravans to make it easy for people to stop and use... Um, uh, the shops, etc. Um, town council approached everyone on the main street, and you can imagine what, what's in a normal small town. I mean, there's there's, there's often a baker, there's a there's a deli of some kind. Um, there might be a small convenience store, there might be a butcher, there might be a second hand store, uh, etc. And of course, the um, civil officers. And so all of these people joined in to make it look more welcoming and look like it was fresh and like something was happening there to encourage people to stop. Now the church was also located in the main street and they went to the church and said, oh, we want to do this, um, uh, so we want you to you know, look after your property and, and we're also looking for money to help with all these changes. And the church said, no, we're not interested in that. And in a way they were saying, we're not part of the wider community, we just expect them to come to us. And I have to say that that, that really saddened me, that response. And it seemed to be just the opposite to what Jeremiah is saying here and of course how Jesus lived. Because he was always going out into the wider communities. Anyway, Jeremiah says, work for the good of the city. Don't separate yourself, but work for the good of the city. Then he goes on and says, pray to God on behalf of the city, since on its welfare yours depends. You know, they're not to pray against the city because they think it's bad. They have to pray for blessing. They're not to judge, but they are to love. Very different approach. 
And then this phrase, for on its welfare, yours depends. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, that in a sense, our welfare as a church depends on the welfare of the community around about us. You know, from time to time, I read books about revivals in Australia and overseas, and I've just read one about one in Wales. And, you know, revivals are always preceded by a really long time, usually a really long time, of prayer and usually fasting. And some people pray for years and years and years. Some people don't even see it, but, but others see this extraordinary change where the Spirit of God moves. And I reckon every revival I've read about, there's a big change for the church, and often the church grows very significantly in numbers. But the wider community is affected too, even if they don't come part of the church. There's still like this, the Spirit trickles over. Uh, over, over the area and, and often you find there's a significant reduction in things like domestic violence and, and reduced rates of, of addiction and gambling and so on and, and I do know of one revival in Australia and I, I won't say where it is but several of the pubs in the area where the revival happened went broke because people stopped drinking as much because they were, they were finding that their worth and their significance in a relationship with God or in the presence of the Spirit rather than, than having to drink uh, as much. Um, so it spreads out. The kingdom of God impacts the whole community, not just the church. And so whether we're going to Corralda Park or whether we're staying here, we're called to invest in the wider community. Our welfare and the welfare of the wider community are linked. You know, when we first, Jonathan and I first introduced that idea of finding people of peace in the community and that there are people where God is already working and who God wants us to work with. The first thing those disciples did when they went out to those people of peace was to offer them peace. So their starting point was to offer peace before they even began a relationship with these people. So first question is, how do we engage with the wider community? And Jeremiah gives us some clear reading about that. Um, clear ideas about that. The second question is, who do you engage with in the wider community? You see, when we look at the life of Jesus, we found, find that he constantly mixed with the wrong people. You know, the religious community were really unhappy with the people that he, he met with. Uh, often the ones who responded to him were those who had actually specifically been rejected by the religious community. And an example of that comes from Luke 17, and I'm going to read that. It's just a few verses, Luke 17, 11 to 19. It'll be on the screen again. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus travelled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him, and they stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus said, we're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to them, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. I mean, those skin ailments uh, made them unclean in religious terms in those days, so they had to stand off. They, had to, they often lived in separate places. They couldn't approach people. They had to call out. They were excluded from the community of faith, which was the one that could most likely bring healing to them. 
and even here they're separate. And the Bible readings give different translations here, but something like the borderlands, they're in between Samaria and Galilee. They're not in either, they're in between. Uh, a bit like, I don't know if you've been to Korea, but something like the demilitarised zone. You know, these two nations, and then there's this just a few kilometres. Where, where you, well, you can't go in that case. But obviously in these borderlands, Jesus could go. But he went to where they were. And that's why they could engage with him. And, and to repeat a point that I, I made earlier, you know, 10 people had a skin disease and were healed. As far as we know, nine of them didn't come to faith. But the kingdom of God comes and it affects the wider community, whether they respond or not. Um, it's clear in this that, that Jesus had a reputation. They knew they could go to Jesus when they, they really thought they couldn't go to the priest or go near the priest. They knew they could call out for mercy and get mercy. And we need a reputation too. A reputation of welcome, not of judging, or being, but being of people who bless. Last time I, I spoke, I, I told a bit of a story from a book about Arthur Truelove, and he was called, Truelove wasn't his name, but this young pregnant woman he was looking after called him that because she saw in him true love. And it's interesting that I didn't mention this last time, but true love goes to see his wife's grave every day and he has lunch with her. And one day he took these toys that his wife liked, that they'd got somewhere, I forget where it was now, but put them on the grave. Anyway, the young girl goes and takes them and we could say that she steals them. But she says... I know I've probably done the wrong thing, but I know Arthur will forgive me. You see, he has a, he has a reputation which affects the behaviour of those round, round about him. And we need a reputation too. So Jesus asked those with skin ailments to believe in him in the sense of going and obeying because only the priests can declare them clean. And in obedience, they are healed. Um, Imagine the celebration, you know, when they can go and join with their families again for special events and those sorts of things. Now, we are not in exile like those people were in Babylon, but we are still called to be the presence of the living God in the wider community. You know, we, we talk about Jesus being the incarnation, the, the presence, the living presence of God here and now, and there's a sense in which we are the people of incarnation, bringing the presence of God wherever we go. So who's the church for? It's a really pivotal, pivotal question. Because sometimes in the history of church, it's, it's, it's acted like the people of Israel. It's separated itself from the surrounding community. And the church has often been against everything that unchurched people were for. And often the church is known for more, more for what it's against than what it's for. That's not a good reputation they have. So what's ours going to be? And I want to finish with a, with a scenario. And I guess I'm trying to be a bit provocative here and trying to make you, you, you take sides. You'll see what I mean by that in a minute. So two churches are on the opposite sides of the same road. Now this, this happens in a lot of places. You know, you've got churches, one church here, one church there. <clears throat> now it was in a very wealthy area of town. So nearly everybody who was in those churches was very wealthy. You know, they were the leaders of companies, CEOs, managers, etc. And, you know, one look in the car park told you they were doing all right. And um, it's Labor Day. 
and this huge union march is happening. And they happen to be marching down the road where the two churches are. And it's, it's all that more poignant because there's a huge strike on and the workers have been locked out of the biggest manufacturing plant in the town, which is run by people in the church. So there's tension in the air. And the march will pass the door of the churches at about the same time that the 11 o'clock service finishes. So out there, down the road, what do the churches do? Well, the church on one side of the road, the elders have a quick meeting and they think, well, this is a terrible thing. So they decide to finish the church service earlier and all the people leave by the back door rather than risk, although some of them line up and just frown and glare at the people walking past the union members. In sharp contrast, the church across the road also lined the street but handed out cups of water and tea and coffee to those who were walking past. Others held up signs saying, everybody's welcome, come and worship with us. They were still the leaders of the community and still probably the bosses of those who walked past, but their response is absolutely different. And why? Because what they believed in overrode everything else. So who's the church for? For middle class people who don't sin? In fact, it's very clear from the Bible that we all sin and fall short from the glory of God. Can the church welcome sinners? Yes. Can we journey together and allow the Holy Spirit to make us like Christ? Yes. Well, God, what an extraordinary God you are. All-powerful. You can do anything, change anyone. And yet you call us. You call us to be your presence imperfect as we are we just sung a song about being available and God we, we, are, we want to be available so in the shopping centres in the workplaces wherever we are in the gym this week Jesus help us to see people you're calling us to and, and actually to feel really safe because you're there before us and all we're doing is joining with you so lead us this week I pray in Jesus name Amen. Well, thanks for listening to the Seeds Church podcast. We hope you join in with us next week. For more information, you can visit our website at seedschurch.org.